0: I came just yesterday. It's made it all that I learned. The emptiness of life exam Time. Hello, out there,
1: and welcome to another episode of Things I the Learned Sky. While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother J.S. to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate those high seas of life. Today we introduce Comrade Dolphin Part One. Warning the dolphins are coming, the dolphins are coming. This is the 1960s version of intersectionality, if there ever was one. It is the intersection of neuroscience, psychotropic drugs, the Cold War, Hugh Hefner, interspecies pleasure, and research, experimental research gone awry. Of course, this is an unusual story. It's unusual because, well, A, I am telling this story, and B, because it involves the 1960s. It's going to be a story about dolphins. I mean, the main subject of this multi-part podcast will be about dolphins. But if you've listened to earlier podcasts of things I've learned while learning other things, you know there's going to be so much stuff to know before we get to bring in those dolphins. We need perspective and we need background. Yes, we do. And and that may prove just as informative and enjoyable, we hope, as the dolphins themselves, the stories about the dolphins. At least I think so. And I believe you will too by the time we are done here. Though that will ultimately be for you to judge. But I do assure you, as in that 1999 movie, Sixth Sense, starring Bruce Willis, where that kid goes, I see dead people. Well, we're going to, I see dolphins, I promise you. And it's a weird story. These stories about those dolphins. Of course it is because it took place in the 1960s. Just growing up in the 1960s was weird enough, I assure you. Every day weird stuff was going on. Confusing at best and there were radical goings on. So let's start simply. Things were changing fast. In music, we went from Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and you know that drunkard Dean Martin singing "Birds and the Bees." Overnight, we changed to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Janis Joplin, the Doors, Jimi Hendrix, the Grateful Dead. Bob Dylan emerged. In music, things would never be the same. Never the same. Out in the streets. Whoa, we had violent riots in Watts, in Detroit, and in a hundred plus other U.S. cities. And as Bob Dylan had sung, yes, indeed, things they were a-changin'. Hot towns, summer in the city, that sort of stuff was happening. And in Chicago, Mayor Daley had issued his famous, or notorious, shoot-to-kill Shoot to maim orders, shoot to kill all arsonists, and shoot to maim all looters. Whoa, this was serious business out of the streets. And and my friend, uh, 16-year-old Rick, one night clung tightly to an upper branch of an oak tree in Grant Park in downtown Chicago near the Loop for nearly eight hours one night fighting off leg cramps and back spasms and panic, sheer panic, in hopes that he might save himself from being beaten to a pulp by Chicago police during the riots at the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Chicago police, aided by um, searchlights, would yank kids hiding out in the park's trees and bash in their faces and skulls, with police batons in what Walter Cronkite rightfully had christened um, on CBS National News broadcast as the Chicago Police Riots, and they could be characterized as nothing else. Rick, for one, absolutely and certainly agreed from all he'd witnessed perched high up in that tree in Grand Park. The Vietnam War was raging and the U.S. government had been lying to us about the war every day for years now. Reminder, just a reminder to me and to you, the stories about the dolphins will be coming. I assure you, just please give me a moment to understand the scene, if you will, understand the times. You yeah, know, I'm 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 both reliving my early teenage years and setting for sta- setting the stage for all the dolphin craziness that's going to follow. In the meantime, let's go back. The chance, hey hey, LBJ. How many kids have you killed today? Even a known hard ass like LBJ, who demand on occasion his aides, even his female aides join him in his bathroom while he sat on the toilet doing his business so that they might take dictation. Dictation. Even LBJ could take no more of this shit, so to speak, as it were, and announce to a stunned polity he would not stand for re-election in 1968. And this opened the door to Richard Nixon to assume the position, if you will. Richard, pull out dick like your father should have Nixon, sweated on his upper lip whenever he was lying to us, to the world on national TV. And he was on national TV a lot in those days. And and it must be said, he sweated on his upper lip a lot when he was on TV a lot in those days. And this went on for the remainder of the decade and even longer. And by the way, later in 1971, when Daniel Ellsberg thought the extent of all the government lying about the war had to be revealed in hopes that all the lying to the U.S. public would just have to stop, he secretly released the Pentagon Papers uh, to the Washington Post and then to the New York Times. And when all that stuff went down, Nixon, you know, already a highly flammable, high, highly excitable, you know, a malevolent, temperamentally paranoid loose cannon. When this happened, he just went mental. He went cyclic, as the Marines would say. Trigger trigger alert here, for those of you who are very sensitive types. Nixon was not PC. From the famous White House tapes then, Nixon said to Halderman and Ehrlichman, but God damn it, what do you think that does to kids? You know what happened to the Greeks? Homosexuality destroyed them. Sure, Aristotle was a homo. We all know that. So was Socrates. You know what happened to the Romans? The last six Roman emperors were fags. So... We return to the White House post Daniel Ellsberg. Nixon ordered J. Edgar Hoover to get his fag ass over to the White House to join him in a serious thought experiment. Hey, how about, Hoover, you arranged for the FBI to blow up the Rand Corporate Headquarters building. What about that, J. Edgar? In retaliation for the Ellsberg leak... Wouldn't it be a good idea, wondered our 37th president, to blow up the Rand Corporate Headquarters building? As the ancient Chinese curse dating back thousands of years goes, may you live in interesting times. And yes, these these were very interesting times to grow up in. Well, what what did Jay Edgar think of this tricky dick idea? Well, it's instructive. That Hoover talked Nixon down from the precipice, the precipice of his insanity. That the FBI engaged in domestic terrorism. And Hoover did so without a reliance upon arguments based either on grounds of immorality or illegality. Nor on the ground, this was America and the American government simply doesn't do things like blowing up its citizenry's private property. But no, Hoover didn't believe these arguments were relevant, sufficient, or likely to prove effective in dissuading the 37th president of the United States from ordering the FBI to blow up people's stuff. No, no, he argued persuasively that the FBI would ultimately very likely be caught for having blown up the RAND corporate headquarters, and that such discovery would piss off a lot of people and make the FBI and Nixon especially look very, very bad politically. Jesus. Now, this, this, this was an argument that Nixon could sink his choppers into. He could wrap his mind around this argument, despite the fact that it irritated him to no end. I mean, Nixon, Nixon was an Orange County guy. Let's admit it, he harbored anti-Semite tendencies. And to think that Daniel Ellsberg was the leaker traitor must have driven him more nuts than he already was. I mean, within a couple of years, Henry Kissinger would report that Nixon had been down on his knees praying in the White House and weeping before he left office, requesting that Henry join him there to say some prayers. So, so one can only wonder what the scene truly was like at the White House as J. Edgar Hoover and Nixon contemplated blowing up the Rand corporate headquarters. Nixon had no choice but to back down as, as, as he triangulated the precise intersection of morality, lo- legality, and political polling. Okay, he yielded. Ixnay on the idea that we blow stuff up. Man, these were interesting times, I'm telling you. Or as, as Carly Ly- Simon would sing those days, these are the good old days. We'd all, <laughs> those of us who were living then had already you know, survived the insanity of the Bay of Pigs debacle, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Barry Goldwater's suggestion that dropping nukes looked to be a good idea. A good idea. Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters had already set off on their tour of the country in their in, in Kesey's psychedelic bus named Further, you know, promoting the value of everybody dropping acid, as was outlined in Thomas Wolfe's Electric Kool Aid Acid Test. And Grace Slick of the Jefferson Airplane had already tried to slip into a White House function with friend Abby Hoffman with the intention of trying to spike Nixon's punch bowl with LSD. Not to kill him, no, but to embarrass him. Nixon would be then witness spouting nonsense, you know, psycho babbling while flying higher than, than he did on Air Force One, you know, on an unscheduled acid trip. This was hoped to discredit him. Then in 1967, we had Malcolm X and black leaders announce plans in Detroit to form a new nation for black people contained within the territory of five southern states. And the new nation would be called the Republic of New Africa. A Declaration of Independence was read and its first president announced, Robert F. Williams. I I mean, are you beginning to understand just How crazy and confusing were the 1960s? I mean, if you're thinking about how nuts things are today in 2022, you have no idea how crazy they were in in the 1960s. And I'm trying to give you just a feel for it. And before the decade was over, it, it is in this milieu of events, the dolphins, I promise you, they'll be coming. They will be coming. In the meantime, JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King are all assassinated. Hate, asbury in San Francisco flourishes, attracts so many kooks, so many hippies, and dangerous people, and it devolves into serious drugs and violence, and it ruins it all. We have Woodstock, we have Altamont, Tim Leary, the crazy William S. Burroughs, Charlie Manson, the zebra killings, a man is on the moon. Oh, my, sh- sh- before my grandmother died, she had told me, Joe, there was never a man on the moon. Never. Anyway, going on with the 1960s, Pulitzer Prize winning author Norman Mailer, out of the blue, announced his candidacy for the mayor of New York City. His deep thinking progressive platform consisted of three words, no more bullshit. I mean, that was his, that was his plan. He planned New York City would secede from the state of New York to become itself the 51st state. Local boroughs, um, they would rule themselves, and it would be okay by him if those boroughs saw fit to pass legislation making free love compulsory. I'm not even sure what that means. Or it would be okay if they legislated mandatory church attendance. That would be just fine, per Norman Mailer. You know, presaging 2022 progressive wet dreams Mailer would ban all cars from Manhattan forever. And all cars on all roads anywhere within New York's five city boroughs would be banned every Sunday. You know, then at the party that night to celebrate the announcement of Mailer's candidacy for mayor of New York City, Mailer's bombastic machismo was on full display. Talk about toxic masculinity. When at 4.30 in the morning, a drunken, enraged Norman Mailer pulled out a knife and he stabbed his wife, Adele, twice. Once in the back and once in the breast, uh, nicking her heart. Uh, Adele was in critical condition undergoing surgery to save her life while Stormin Norman Mailer was off to the Bellevue Mental Hospital for observation, you you would think. Stabbing people is likely to end any candidate's campaign for political office in America. So Mailer's dreams of becoming mayor of New York City, perhaps our nightmare, were were abruptly, fortunately, brought to an end immediately. Could it be any weirder than this? Yes, of course it could. It was the 1960s. So let's just now begin to bring into this tale at long last those dolphins I've mentioned several times already. And I bring them into this discussion only only reluctantly and but necessarily by by bringing into the story that seemingly Joe Biden-like, harmless, robe-wearing grandpa of pornography, Hugh Hefner. I'm not kidding. This is the proper introduction of the subject. Specifically, Hugh enters the story when he includes in his nudie magazine Playboy an article in the August 1968 issue that was entitled Deep Thinkers. And and, and it's at this point of our discussion that we will exit this intro of those comrade dolphins and the dolphins in extreme supreme intelligence by suggesting that we hope you will join us in our next episode where the stuff about the dolphins really begins to get weird. So thanks for listening to this long intro on Comrade Dolphin with more to come. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: I came just yesterday, made all that I learned, the emptiness of life examined, time can't be returned, misguided and all of my own, at least that's what I I miss what was in front of me. Two eyes that can't make you see. It's the mind that paints all these pictures, like the mirage of the desert. I misread all the signals. never knew that I'd been lost. I fought those from where. Can she forgive me? Can she forget? Can she keep us from falling